CLS is the weighing machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. CLS is the weighing machine is inspired by two ideas. The first is the classic investing truism attributed to Benjamin Graham, that the stock market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine in the long run. In other words, Emotion drives short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations drive returns over time. The second idea is CLS's investment methodology of risk budgeting. Represented by the scales, risk budgeting measures and manages risk to suit the needs of each investor. Welcome to CLS's The Weighing Machine. We hope you enjoy it. And as always, please let us know what you think. On the podcast today, the long-awaited value comeback has arrived, or hasn't arrived. Plus, the best stock markets you'll never invest in, and three ways investing is more like science than math. We will also discuss the weird bond market, the most underrated savings tools, and Wall Street versus Wright Street. That's with our guest, Senior Portfolio Manager and Director of Research, Grant Engelbart. Plus, my interview is with CLS Chief Investment Officer, Mark Pfeffer. Welcome to CLS is the Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. How is September shaping up? Well, like most of the months so far of the past year and the past 10 years, it's a positive month. But what is different is there's been kind of a reversal on who's leading the way. And a couple of things really stand out. First of all, value stocks are beating growth stocks so far this month and by a pretty handy margin. Uh, smaller companies are beating larger companies. Um, international is beating domestic stocks. Uh, commodities are still slightly outperforming as of this podcast, uh, the overall global market as well. About the only thing that is underperforming is the bond market, which of course is, I think last month and the last couple of months is the first time people really liked it, just in time for it to actually lose ground. <laughs> Interesting to know how that would happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's bring in our guest to talk sentiment now, Senior Portfolio Manager and Director of Research, Grant Engelbart. Grant, welcome to the show. Hey, always great to be here. So how are investors feeling? Yeah, the, uh, the the gauge of sentiment out there, um, for the most part, they're not overly optimistic. So in equities, we're out in the neutral range, so there's no real signal there saying investors are super bullish, which is uh, negative for future returns, or super bearish, which is a real, really positive for future returns. So there's still plenty of um, opportunity, I think, in the equity markets from that standpoint. Rusty mentioned bonds, though. Everyone really starting to like bonds a lot. Sentiment has gotten quite elevated, and we saw in recent weeks um, rates back up uh, and bonds fall uh, as you know as a result I think of you know, that sentiment really points to future returns well and we're seeing that start to kind of curl over from a fixed income perspective so that bears watching uh, a couple other asset classes the dollar um, fits and starts overall fairly neutral uh, oil despite a huge move uh, in in recent weeks as well still pretty neutral also and then gold has been um, investors have really flocked to but that is also a bit extreme and starting to kind of peel over um, just like the bond market is. So that also bears watching. Hey, you know, when we talk about sentiment, we're always talking about what investors are thinking, which I think is really important. There are just so many studies that show what they're thinking is a signal for future market performance. What about actual money flows? Have you seen anything on that lately? seen a little bit um, in the, you know, we talk about quality and, and the flows in the quality ETFs and, and that being a bit more expensive and in some some of the um, some specific sectors that are tied to the bond market also have seen kind of ex- excessive flows that can 
um, be indi indicative of, uh, you know, when those get to a certain point, um, they're no longer positive, really. It's it, it's a too extreme. So we've seen that in a few sectors like that. Yeah. Some of these sentiment gauges will bring uh, actual dollar positioning in, into uh, into that measure as well, which is helpful to see because yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Well, kind of on that point, I had two thoughts. One is that you just mentioned a couple different sort of areas that have been really popular with investors in terms of flows are uh, higher quality stocks and also lower volatility stocks. And um, both of them had have, have performed well, but the flows and sentiment are so extreme in both those cases. I mean, even quality stocks are crazy expensive. But the other thing I wanted to point out, which I'm really optimistic about going into year end, and it's probably based more on, well, actually, there's, I was going to say just hope, but there is historical evidence. But flows for the stock market have been strongly negative most of the year. And it was week after week after week. And tell you, I don't know when it turned around, but I know of late they've been positive at coming back into the market. And obviously, if that actually were to persist, we could, again, be set up for a pretty good fourth quarter in the markets. Hmm. All right. Well, good stuff. Okay, so Rusty, two areas that we favor here at CLS that have actually struggled in recent months and even recent years are value and global stocks. But at least on the value side, we have seen some movement that may suggest the tide is turning. Is that right? Value is starting to come back? Well, Maybe? we have seen some pretty interesting behavior, relative uh, performance. And sometimes, I mean, usually it is a clue that we may be actually seeing a, a shift in the tides. And first of all, uh, value stocks have underperformed growth stocks and momentum stocks. And it kind of makes sense in the sense that when when economic growth is low, uh, investors will pay up for growth stocks. When interest rates are low, uh, investors will pay up for growth stocks, generally speaking. Um, but growth is very expensive and value is very cheap. And what we've seen here in the last couple of weeks is uh, a couple days really stand out. It was like the best day of value versus quality stocks in eight years or something like that. And some databases, it was the best day of value versus momentum stocks. I mean, it was just really some extraordinary performance. So um, obviously, we want value to come back because relative valuations do support that and sort of our portfolio is the way they're positioned. But I guess you know, we still need more evidence that value is truly back. So our global tilt is still lagging. But as Case Eichenberger, who's the senior cl client portfolio manager here at CLS, um, wrote in his weekly three from a couple weeks back, there are some opportunities in some of the unlikeliest of places overseas. Well, you know, Grant and I were just talking about how being a contrarian can really pay off, but really sometimes the best value can be found in places or countries no one wants to look at. And in international, some of the countries that would seem the least desirable, including uh, Greece and Russia, have actually performed really well this year. I mean, think about Greece, massive government deficits, you know, 10 years ago, the economy contracted by 26% just a handful of years ago. And you look at Russia and all their economic issues, you know, wealth is really concentrated in the hands of a few. But they're cheap. I mean, Russia trades at a price-earnings multiple of less than six. It's like one-third the U.S. And yet, these are some of the best performers in out of all the global markets this year. Pretty interesting. So the bond markets have been pretty weird around the world. Um, while we have an inverted yield curve here in the U.S., other yield curves are negative. And yet, there are places like Argentina where the short-term interest rate is nearly 86%. Grant, what is going on? <laughs> well, I wish I had a prescription for for this, but uh, it's a it's a head-scratcher that even I think a lot of central bankers are, are wondering and trying to figure out. So I want to offer just a few thoughts um, behind the the kind of the negative interest rate phenomenon, if you will, that, that I don't think people can really grasp. I mean, why would you pay a government or someone to 
borrow money from you. Like, it, it doesn't make sense that you would loan them money and also pay them for the thought of loaning the money uh, right. behaviorally. Um, but there are some some reasons for that, I, I guess, that, that could potentially explain that. So, again, there's about 15% of the global bond market that's actually negative currently, um, mostly in areas like Japan and parts of Europe. Um, first off, quantitative easing. So central banks around the world have been buying bonds. Um, the more you buy a bond, you push down its yield until eventually that yield becomes negative. Um, so that's a you know potentially a big reason. The demographic shift in the developed world, um, you know, we talk about merging economies, having a younger um, kind of growing middle class and, and growing workforce, but it's kind of the opposite in the developed world um, for a variety of reasons. And, and so that population is growing. The population is, is living longer um, and growing older at the same time. So their demand for income and yield is, is high, um, and, and thus the demand for bonds, which pushes down yields. Um, growth and inflation, you know, certain areas of that same, in that same part of the developed world, there's, you know, we haven't seen, in, you know, inflation come to fruition, and inflation is kind of a component of a bond yield, if you will, um, or if you think about the, the idea behind bond yields, it's growth and inflation. Um, and some sort of term premium included in there. And so we just haven't seen that in certain parts of the world that have these lower yields. Um, there's structural effects too. Some of these com companies in Germany um, or, or wherever they have negative bonds, they, they have to buy, you know, insurance companies or whatever it may be, has to buy the bond in that country. So that just, you know, creates that artificial demand that may not be there. Um, there's some other really good arguments that I've heard about kind of what's pushing our bond yield, uh, bond market down as far as like overseas buyers. If you have a negative yield, why wouldn't you want to buy the U.S. <laughs> bond market? Well, you have to hedge that uh, unless you want to take that currency risk, which can be to your detriment. And so hedging that would actually pretty much eliminate that whole yield pickup you have there. So there's some kind of interesting thoughts behind currency. And overall, uh, the world's a scary place. People like high-quality instruments, and they bid these instruments up to places where they no longer have a positive yield. So that was a lot, but th that's <laughs> my, my my essential uh, kind of guide map, if you will, for, for trying to explain negative interest rates. All right. Well, thanks for trying to explain it. <laughs> okay. So no matter what happens with the markets or interest rates or the bond market or global investing or whatever, one way to ensure higher returns is simply to save more, right? But there are a number of ways to do this, and some are often overlooked. So, Grant, what are some of the most underrated saving tools out there? Yeah, so I went a different route here, uh, put my financial planning hat on, and I know we work with a ton of terrific financial planners and advisors around the country um, that are going to already probably know this, but but I like to, to bring it up and um, just to, to raise awareness of, of these tools that I think are really important um, for, for the future, especially for maybe uh, a little bit younger folks as well. There's a three in particular I highlight here. First, a health savings account. So this is one of the only places where you can get uh, put w money away um, before taxes, grow it tax-free, and then essentially take it out tax-free later on, triple tax exempt. Um, very rare um, to have that in a, any kind of savings vehicle nowadays. Um, and, and, and of course, the health, the cost of healthcare rising so dramatically that having a savings vehicle dedicated towards health um, is, is something that's, you know, I think makes a lot of sense for a lot of people, and it can also free up their kind of emergency savings. So if you think about someone keeps a certain amount of money on the side because of health emergencies, we'll keep that in HSA, and then, you know, if you can potentially invest that emergency savings or whatever it may be. So I like those a lot. Roth 401k is a little bit more common, um, but also there's a lot of benefits in Roth 401ks um, for uh, you, you can contribute a lot more than you can in a Roth IRA. 
Um, so, you know, the, the contribution limits are $19,000 versus $6,000 in, in an IRA. Um, and there's also no income limits. So you can, especially in some higher uh, income areas, New York, California, things like that, you could phase out of a Roth IRA contribution. Like you make too much money, you can't contribute to a Roth IRA, um, but you can't uh, with a Roth 401k. So that's, that's potentially very beneficial to, to folks as well. Um, and then the last one is, is a little different than the other two, but it's a, a product offered by the Treasury called I-bonds. So they're essentially inflation-adjusted bonds, but they're not tips. So they're not marketable, meaning they don't trade. There's no volatility. Um, there's a re- readjustment on the inflation component, and they also pay you a small uh, income component on top of that. So current yield right now is about 1.9%, which um, is pretty solid nowadays uh, to get uh, essentially a guaranteed 1.9% without volatility. So something to look at. Uh, there's some limitations as far as how much you can invest, but I think it's a cool way to kind of diversify your savings uh, as an individual. Great tips. And I-bonds, I was a big fan of them for many years, getting ready for my kids to go to college. I invested at the max every year for 15 years. It's great. Yeah. yeah. got to start early. You got to start early. So Rusty Case also wrote about something else that was pretty interesting, and that's the science behind investing. And that was in his weekly three um, a couple weeks ago. So most people associate math with investing, but Case sees a lot more similarities with science. Yeah, I thought this was a fun piece. And, um, you know, Case is basically a teacher. And that's one reason why he is so good at what he does here and the way he communicates. And he's just so effective talking to advisors and investors. And, you know, he grew up around teachers, mostly science teachers. His brother went into math. and uh, But he thinks he's lucky to, that he's found a blend in, in the job that he does here. He brings in examples of biology, inertia, and osmosis, and just sort of tease it out. I'm going to say, you got to read the article. It's just too good to pass up. <laughs> All right. Finally, Grant, you wrote a pretty cool section in your Weekly 3 out this week about the difference between Wall Street and Wright Street. And for those of you who don't know, Wright Street is our address here at CLS. What was the point you were making? Yeah, I, I'm kind of, I guess, being retrospective here with my life. I don't know. It's a midlife crisis or something like that. But because you're so old. <laughs> it's about time to start looking back. Have a retrospective. <laughs> Ten years now. Jeez. Yeah, I know. It's not that long <laughs> in the in the grand scheme of things. Um, but but you know, being here for, for ten great years, uh, there's a lot there's been a lot of change. There's been a ton of change. Um, in, across companies, names of companies, employees, uh, building location, locations around the country, growth of assets, everything is has changed. Um, but and, and most of that's been great. But the one thing that I think that I've seen through all of this is we're doing it all for the advisor and for the client mm-hmm. and, and doing the best that we can to, to support them and taking that fiduciary responsibility so seriously um, you know, that we've done some amazing things just as a firm, just internally um, to help our advisors. You know, we're constantly looking for feedback. I mean, Rusty says it all the time. You know, we want to hear feedback, you know, working with advisors out there. Uh, on how we can be better, how we can help, you know, even create strategies that help them um, and do a number of things like that. So I I think that's just great to see that. And that's throughout the organization, right? You know, our, you know, sister company, Orion Advisor Technology, that's their bread and butter is supporting these, this super fast growing RIA market of advisors that are essentially saying, we're only doing fee business, we're we're breaking away from these wirehouses and only doing this fee business. So I I think it's great and you know, our industry has a stigma or had a stigma maybe in certain periods of time. And I think we're we're doing amazing things to really overcome that. And our influence too is huge. Um, Orion has just become such an amazing name in the FinTech industry. 
and it's a little more niche but inside the ETF industry, I mean, CLS is, yeah, is a, is a household name, if you will, um, in that world. And, and that opens up all sorts of opportunities, you know, right down the road uh, from from me that I never thought I would, get, you know, get or see in Omaha. So just uh, more of a kind of a thankful piece for, for what, what we've done here and, uh, you know, that our advisors are in great hands. Right. And good thing that even with the building change, we're still on Wright Street. Yes. That's right. Yes. <laughs> okay. That's going to do it for this portion of the podcast. Grant, thanks for being on the show today. Absolutely. Next up is Rusty's Q&A. And today he talks to Mark Pfeffer, who is the new chief investment officer here at CLS. Yeah. So Mark Pfeffer is the new chief investment officer. And I guess there's four questions that I could address kind of like the preamble before we hear from him. And by the way, this interview for the regular listeners of The Weighing Machine uh, this interview with Mark was also on the last one. It was not on it when we initially launched it, but I think a lot of people missed it because the announcement that it was CIO was not official yet. So it was reinserted in the last podcast, but we figured we should put a little more spotlight on it here. So anyway, the four questions. First of all, I guess what's happening to my role? And the second one is, well, you know, why Mark? And then the third question is what's going to be the same? And then the fourth, fourth question is what's different? And the first one is, in terms of my role, uh, my title now is I'm going to become the chief investment officer for Orion. And that's really the mother company for CLS Investments. So you could say I'm still ultimately responsible for the CLS um, you know, investment team and strategies. But I guess instead of being like the, use a college football example, instead of being the head coach, I'm probably more like the athletic director. But I'm still on strategies. I'm still helping run funds. I'm still in regular meetings. I just came up a research meeting with Grant before we came into the podcast. I'll be still doing the podcast. I'll still be writing monthly commentary. I'll still be in the videos. I'll still be part of the investment committee. So I still will be involved. So why is Mark the, uh, and I should say, what am I doing for Orion? That means I'll be responsible for, uh, again, CLS Investments, as I mentioned, but also some of our sister companies, all the investment management related stuff that they do as well, which I'm pretty excited about. So now why Mark? And it's pretty much a slam dunk answer. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. First of all, Mark is, I mean, he's legit. He's a 30-year vet. Uh, he used to be a portfolio manager at Goldman Sachs. He used to be a chief investment officer. Um, he's actually had the longest tenure on the PM team at CLS as a PM. Grant's actually been here longer, as he just mentioned. Um, uh, Mark and I have worked together for seven years. We have a great relationship. He clearly has an independent view. We've had a lot of great discussions and debates, and I think has made us both better. Uh, Mark, again, like I said, he's legit. He's made a lot of money in his career, both professionally and personally. So he really, he really is a money mind. He is a shrewd judge of investment talent, not, not only investment opportunities. Uh, he ha again, his track record is great. He has run, a, for instance, a money market fund for 25 years, and I think that is remarkable. Mo many money market funds have simply died over the last 25 years, and he's run it. And despite the fact that all the lousy money market funds have disappeared, he still had above average performance on it. I mean, he's just he's just a competitor. Uh, also, is one of our most successful strategies over the last you know three plus years is Active Income X, which Mark is involved in. And again, his focus on risk, his focus on transaction costs and tax costs. I mean, it just it just comes through. Okay, so what's going to be the same? Uh, obviously, um, it's going to be the, when it comes to CLS. It's really the same storylines about how we manage money. It's the same team. It's the same philosophy and process. We still have the same proprietary uh, expected returns and risk scores that we've always done. And again, I, I I think that I brought energy, discipline, and a competitive spirit to the team. But you know what? Mark is stellar at all three of those. He's super energetic. He's super disciplined, and he is definitely competitive. 
So in terms of what are the differences, and you know, this is me like really like nitpicking in a lot of ways, but um, you know, first of all, Mark every day he is buying and selling millions of dollars worth of securities in the morning and fixed income, so he is more in tune with kind of the the short, really short term market stuff and the economic stuff. Um, and so he's just, and when it comes to just talking about the markets, he's just even more on top of particularly the short term stuff than than virtually everybody on the team. Uh, he is really about security selection. Obviously, he's an asset allocation expert, but my training over the last you know, 20, 30 years has really been on portfolio construction and risk management, stuff that Mark focuses on. But I probably put a little more emphasis on it. But again, Mark still looks at that too. Mark sounds different. He's from New York. I'm from Nebraska. That's a big difference as well. And, um, you know, and I guess, you know, he still believes in valuations too, but because of the function of his job, he's probably put a little more emphasis on economic analysis and momentum, which I still look at, but he probably puts a little more on that and a little less on relative valuations than I do. But again, those are probably the kind of the quick answers. And I guess we'll let Mark do some of the talking now in his own words. First question for you, Mark. So as Rusty said, he's still yep. going to be a presence here um, at CLS. And But talk about um, any new directions, any new things that you want to implement in your new role. Well, I think Rusty and I, the, the things that we have similar first, I'll start with that, is we're both very competitive people and we play a win. I think when we look at investing, we are a little bit different. I'm probably more of an invest, uh, a momentum player. Rusty, as you mentioned several times, is much more of a value uh, player in terms of looking at investments. So in all likelihood, I would expect some sort of tweaking of, of what we look at in terms of how we invest and in, what securities that we'll be buying. The security selection will be a little bit different. Um, the other thing I would just say, our personality is just different. Uh, you know, even though Rusty did uh, go to school in Boston, is a little bit of an East Coaster. He is uh, a lot friendlier overall than, than I am, and uh, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit rougher, a little bit more abrasive than. Uh, it's than just he is. direct. So, a little, yes, a little bit more direct, a little bit more no nonsense, and uh, so. But I think um, again, so far with the communication I've had with the guys, I think uh, sometimes change is, is good, and it could be a, a breath of fresh air. So I, I think uh, sometimes an infusion of, of, of new a new set of eyes and ears of Rusty, of course, is, is great to be here. And we've talked about how, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, it's even though Rusty is leaving this position, you think about it sometimes when, when, when somebody leaves, it's like, okay, they give you a two-week notice, and what they're doing is they're giving you a rundown of all the things that they have to do, and it becomes like a fire drill. The great thing we have here is Rusty is still here, so I'm going to have him to lean on, and I will need all of his help and guidance because I will make mistakes along the way, and uh, hopefully nothing too, uh, too dr- drastic, but uh, I am looking forward to it, and it's great to have him here. So, But again, I think just a... Just a a different slant in personalities, how we look at things a little bit differently. So that's my tweet on that one. A little, sh- now, little winded, as Rusty would say, right? Now, before – now, yeah, Mark's tweets are a lot shorter than that. <laughs> the uh, Now, before, yeah. I, before I ask Mark a question, I just I just want to fill in some of this – or comment on some of the stuff he said. So first of all, Mark and I are both, uh, again, very competitive. We want to win. So And we have a very great working relationship as well. I, I do take offense saying breath of fresh air. Uh, I'm sure we could <laughs> – Probably, you know, I might tell Kevin in the booth to actually retract that comment. No, just kidding. He can keep that. Um, It's just different air. It's more air. It's like now there are two fans in the room. 
Uh, I actually kind of describe this as yeah. that uh, Mark has become the head football coach. I mean, it's college football season, so everything comes back to the Cornhuskers, at least for me, not for Mark. But the uh, it's like he's now the head coach and I'm the athletic director, so I'm still very involved. Mark is clearly better than me talking about the markets. And this actually comes a little bit how we do look at the markets differently. I would say... I, since I'm an asset allocation guy, and so is Mark, but I'm making trades not every day. I mean, obviously, we're running cash, managing cash flows for our mutual funds, but basically, we're not doing that many trades. But Mark, each and every day, is trading millions and millions of dollars of fixed income securities. So he's looking at the economic data even deeper and more closely and analyzing it more than I am. I want to. I personally want to characterize it so much as momentum is that he's just on top of the economic data a little more and is a little more responsive to the shorter term volatility than I am. Um, and that is definitely a strength that he has. Now I'm going to ask him a question. Go for it. So, um, and it's kind of a, a, a take on a question I think I've asked Mark before in a podcast a long time ago. But Mark, in your opinion, now that you're responsible for the investment team, what do you think makes a good money manager? and a good analyst. Well, the first thing I want, and again, I feel like this is a bit of a cliche, but it's certainly someone that's gonna be passionate about the markets. I don't necessarily need someone that went to the best school. I don't need someone that's had necessarily the best grades. But in terms of speaking to people, and you know, I can just go on prior hires that I've had in other roles before, that's, those are the things that I look for. Just in terms of having conversations, you can get a feel for somebody pretty quickly about how into the market they are. And I generally look to, because this is such a, again, intense market, and you need to really, I look at, have to stay on top of it. You, you really have to be into it. And it's meaning to me, it's not just a, you know, this isn't just a, a job to me. Whether I was working or not working, I'm going to watch the market day in, day out, weekend in, weekend out. I'm going to watch it. And I just want those people to have sort of a, a real interest in the market. In terms of an analyst, which is a, a, a little bit more granular, they certainly have to have that analytical skill the, you know, to be able to break things down, probably much more analytical than I would be on, on, on breaking these things down. Uh, and, I, and I definitely love the younger generation's way that they think. So um, just really just someone that's, that's a, in a lot of cases, an out-of-the-box thinker. So I'm really looking for someone that's going to challenge me, challenge the team, and come up with new suggestions um, from their way of thinking. Robin, you're next. So, okay, you've both talked about winning a lot. Um, Mark, talk about some of the other activities you, you do, because I know you do a lot of different things um, that have to do with winning and how are they related to your job currently and your job in the future? Yes, speaking of winning, I, I've been told once that almost every single activity that I do has a competitive slant to it. I play a lot of sports. Uh, I play poker. And like, for example, poker to me, you have to read people, you have to, you know, so it's like reading the market, you have to try to get tea leaves. So reading, playing poker is, is something that I find is very keen to investing. And I know there are investment firms on the street that actually look for people that play poker in terms of, uh, and the relationship that they have in terms of the investment team that they have. That's, so those are both competitive because they're both playing to win. And now a third thing which has become a, a new phenomenon over the last several years. I do it. My kids do it. I would say is fantasy sports, like fantasy football leagues. I mean, look what you're doing there. You have to, you have to come up with a roster. You have to, a lot of cases, there's a, there's a dollar value, and you have to decide who to play 
um, where you think that there's value one week to the next. It's like like deciding whether you want to sell commodities, whether you want to be in the U.S. versus international, whether you're going to play this quarterback versus that quarterback. So I think there's a lot of relationship in terms of playing fantasy sports. And it so happens that this first week I am lined up against Rusty. So unfortunately for him, it's going to be his first loss of the season. Ah, so, right. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that is something I would say fantasy sports and that is very big in my house. Is something and 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 people play it for, play people play it for money. I mean, it's it's a really really competitive thing now, and I would say that putting together a a fantasy sports team and watching out for injuries and taking players off waiver wires, it's a lot like investing. You know what? On this fantasy football thing, I just got to say I don't really care if I win the league, but I want to beat Mark. That's it. <laughs> That's all I want to do. So, um. All right, so Mark, you got to wave the flag for CLS high, which you already have done, of course. But in your own words, what sets CLS apart from other asset management firms? Uh, there are several things I would say. I think our team is second to none. Uh, we have a very diverse group of people. So like Rusty and I are like, if you want to call it the elder statesman, where we've been around for 30 plus years. Then we have the, if you want to call it the, the core PM guys that are in their mid-30s. And then we have a bunch of younger guys that are in their 20s. Um, if you look at a lot of Wall Street firms now, I know the average age of Goldman Sachs employee, I believe, is under the age of 30. And ours is a little bit more experienced than that, and ours is well over the age of 30. And we have three separate generations of people that I think all make great contributions and have great discussions into the team. And then the other thing I would say is how our portfolios look different than other ones. We're not looking to run conventional portfolios, uh, as Rusty has told me plenty of times. You know, in terms of thinking outside the box, which I try to do, try to do more of in terms of looking at whether it's smaller portfolios, other ones in terms of securities that maybe are not in the run of the mill ones, not just you know buying things because we're not looking to just be like running like benchmark portfolios. We're going to be different in terms of the security selection that we have in our portfolios, and I think nobody does a better job really taking a granular look inside the ETF themselves and what those securities hold and how they would be impacted by markets going up or down. All right. Well, a final question for you, Mark. Um, obviously, yep. this is a new oh, position. I got one for him, too, after that. Okay. Okay. Second to final question for you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, this is a new position, but what are some of the challenges that you're seeing um, that you might be facing already? Well, in essence, before this, if you want to call it, I was, uh, let's call it a a quarterback of certain portfolios that I'm running. And as Rusty pointed out correctly, now, now I've become like a, like a head coach. And right now, I guess I'm uh, like Rusty, I'm not going to be giving up any of the portfolios that I'm on. So like now I'll refer to myself as like a player coach. So I think now what you, what you have to do is I have to take much more into consideration the, the needs and um, of the team members and what they're actually looking at. So trying to relieve Rusty of some of those duties, which I probably didn't have an appreciation for, which I've already seen just in a few days of just, just personal, when I say personal, I mean just needs for, to get their jobs done and things to make them more effective in their day-to-day um, going about whatever they need to do. So I think that that's really the biggest thing so far. So, and a lot of that, quite frankly, is, is a time suck, but it's one that's really necessary to keep uh, the team happy. And I'm trying to, to take on that responsibility, one where, one, as I said, I probably didn't see before, like if I was just playing quarterback, all my job is to do is to get, you know, get the ball down the field and get into the end zone. But now I have to make sure that you know, our 
all the positions lined up correctly? Do we have enough people on the offensive line, or do we do we have injuries? Do we have enough players on the team? Do we do we need more? Where are we where are we short? Where where should we move resources around? All of those types of things. As, I, as again, as I as I delve into this, and as Rusty mentioned, I've had prior experience doing this. Certainly not at CLS. So those types of things. Uh, are things that are familiar to me, but it's been a while since I've done it. So uh, I'm catching up to speed uh, again here at CLS. I am very excited about it, and uh, it has been a very, very busy last, let's call it 72 hours or so, even with all the weekends. So I am excited about it, but it's definitely a, a challenge, and as I said, taking into account all the needs and considerations, not just that I need, but also for the members of the team. Oh, heck, I don't have another question. With the clothes <laughs> like that. Hey, I just one thing I want to say in terms of my role again. the I'm still going to be doing client events, and I'll still be writing commentary and doing weekly meetings with the team and videos and podcasts, so I'll still be involved as well. It's just that at Mark, it's, he's, Mark's just driving a lot of that stuff now. So anyway, thanks, Mark. Thanks yeah. for letting us haze you. I don't think we hazed him very well, though. No, we he's, didn't really ask yeah. him anything that unexpected. Next time. Next time. We got time. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this portion of the podcast. Hey, Mark, thanks for being on the show today and good luck. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Take care. Good stuff. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final thoughts. Stay balanced and stay the course. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to CLS's The Weighing Machine and thank you for your time and trust in CLS Investments. CLS's The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at CLS Investments, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have questions or feedback about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty.vanneman at clsinvest.com.